not a huge roller coaster enthusiast, but when I was in my first year of teaching high school Bible at a local Christian school, I'm so sorry, let me pause this. Kids, you know what you're supposed to do. I just forgot to tell you about it. So again, I'm not a roller coaster enthusiast. My, my first year of teaching high school Bible, um, the seniors at the end of the year went on a senior trip to Cedar Point. And I was dubbed as one of the chaperones to go with them. I'm like, I'm not a huge roller coaster enthusiast. I've probably said this before, but they said, they want you and so go. And so I was like, okay, well, it'll be a fun day anyway. Well, of course, due to peer pressure of teachers, you have to go on rides with your students. And so uh, there are at Cedar Point, I don't know if you've been, but a couple pretty dangerous rides, <laughs> headache inducing, vomit inducing. So um, while there, one of the more dangerous rides that I experienced was one of the ones where you walk up, you know, you wait in line for hours, obviously, and then you get up there and there's like a bicycle seat you're like, okay, this has a lot of twists and turns. <laughs> what, what is this bicycle seat gonna do for me? And so get on, you realize the, the PA instructor starts coming over the announcements. You know, they, they tell you, pull this uh, harness down over you. You feel the click, 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 click. And all of a sudden, it's nice and snug. And I'm feeling a whole lot better about this because <laughs> it is snug. And though... I was, I did not want to be on there. The instructions of pull the harness down, feel it click, pull it out, make sure that it's, that it's nice and good around you because I'm looking out and seeing these twists and turns and like, okay, I am trusting for this thing to hold me here this whole time. Because <laughs> I know if it lets go, you, you know the end of that story. I'm a goner. I trusted the instructions given to me, relied on them, and relied on the protection because when you're in a roller coaster, you rely on every bit of protection you possibly can from falling out. In our text today, we're gonna see a couple different responses and the responses could be reliance or defiance. I don't know of anybody who has ever been dumb enough to defy the instructor over the PA of pull this harness down over you and say, no, I'm just gonna grab on and <laughs> hang on tight. That would be pretty dumb. But in life and with respect to God, God gives instructions for his people and we so often deny them. We defy them. We say, no, we think we know how to get through this roller coaster of life. And so we hang on by our own strength. We rely on ourselves. In our text, there are two seeds, two family lines represented. And those who are of the spiritual offspring of the serpent defy God. And those who are of the spiritual offspring of the woman rely on God. And so those are our two points this morning. The serpent's defiance and the seed's reliance. And we'll see a couple examples of each. So let's start right in. First, the serpent's defiance. 
the heart of enmity that we saw start in Cain's response last week, my punishment is too great for me to bear, we see pick up in verse 14. So look there with me. Verse 14 says, Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Cain still doesn't get the weightiness of his sins. It seems as though Cain wants the blessings from God, but does not, but he knows that blessings from God come in reconciliation with God, in a relationship with God. But Cain wants God's favor. He doesn't want God, though. He wants what God can give to him, but he doesn't want who God is. And that's so easy for us to do, just to make a quick application point. We so often want things from God, but we don't want to, we're okay with not being in fellowship with him. How often during the day does something go wrong and you say, oh Lord, please help me, <laughs> like right now. Or how many of your prayers are infused with, oh Lord, please give me this, give me this. Um, would you not do this or would you do this? And we want things from God we want his favor, but we don't necessarily want God. Those aren't necessarily, to ask God for something, those aren't necessarily bad prayers because God is a good father and he wants to give good gifts to his kids. But if that's our only prayer, we're not treating God like a father, we're treating him like a genie in a bottle. Cain wanted a genie. He wanted a God that was distant, that was not in a relationship with him. He didn't care about his character of love and justice. He just wanted his things. And so because he doesn't want God, his banishment actually turned out to both be his punishment and his choice. It was both his punishment and his choice. He believes the same lie that Eve believed and when she was tempted to doubt God's intentions towards her. He believed that God was sending him away to die. What a cruel God you are. But look back at what God says in verse 15. He says, not so. Nope. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold, and the Lord put on a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Oh, see the Lord's protection of Cain. His continued care for Cain. The care and concern that God had for innocent Abel in verse 10 is matched here by the concern that God has for Cain even in his rebellion. God has a care and concern for Cain. And so he corrects Cain and says, not so. You're wrong. I'm going to protect you. And explains that his intentions towards Cain are mercy. He has merciful intentions towards Cain. God then gives him a mark or a sign of his protection. God promised to Cain in giving him this mark that in his wanderings, God would give him safe conduct. 
Now, we don't know what this mark was. A lot of guesses have been made as to what was this mark that God put on Cain. A couple of guesses have been a dog. Um, One guess was a uh, brightly colored coat so that people could see him and apparently say, oh, I'm not supposed to kill that guy. Um, Another example was a tattoo, and another guess has been a horn from his forehead, guess a desire for unicorns is strong. <laughs> we don't know what the sign was. And that's not the point of this passage. We see the, the focus lead us straight on to the fact that this was meant to deter any person, any future people from the line of Seth or from the line of Cain who said, what Cain did was wrong. It was unjust. I'm going to avenge the blood of Abel by killing Cain. And God said, that is not, I'm not gonna let that happen. If anybody attempts to take vengeance on you for Abel's blood, I've already got that. I'm gonna take vengeance on him. So Cain has been promised protection during his wandering. And then he is sent away from God's presence to the land of Nod in the east. And we'll see Cain and his offspring defy God in three ways. And here is the first way. Cain settles in the land of Nod. And this is where we find the first act of defiance. Look at verse 17 for me, or with me. Cain knew his wife and he conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of that city after his son Enoch. So Cain builds a city and in so doing, Cain defied God's protection. He defied God's protection. God promised to Cain that he would protect him in his wandering. But Cain showed again that he did not believe God's intentions and that God would keep his end of his promise. And so, He built a city for himself as a means of self-protection. Cain defied God's protection. It's assumed that Cain was married previously um, before killing his brother because God immediately sends him away from the land um, or else had he gotten married afterwards, his marriage probably would have been mentioned here, but the text assumes his marriage. It says Cain knew his wife. And who was his wife? Well, it must have been his sister, a daughter of Adam and Eve. Because if we are descended from a single pair, this is the only possible way for humans to be fruitful and multiply and fulfill what God has called them to do, to be fruitful and multiply. Now, this continues until the expansion of the population of mankind until it's unnecessary and God installs a law It's not long after God establishes his people in Leviticus 18 that God rules out any further sexual relationships between close family relatives. And so how does God, or Cain, defy God? Cain has a son with his wife. He names his son Enoch, meaning dedication. And in establishing the first city in the world, naming that city after his son, what he is doing is he is dedicating that city, that first city of self-protection to his own progeny, to his own legacy. He wants his legacy to live on 
through his son. And so he names it after his son. He doesn't give any respect to what God is doing in his life, what God is doing in protecting him. We find through the rest of Genesis that not one city does Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, whoever, establish and name it without respect to God. Every other city in the book of Genesis is named with respect to what God has done or for who God is. Not so with Cain. And so he defies God by naming this city after his son. Now he built a city as a form of protection for he and his lineage because what came to be the practice of civilizations is, and, and people for that matter is that if you want protection, you must build walls. If you want to protect those you hold most dear, you build walls. If you fear losing what you value highest, you build walls. And if you want to keep out those with whom you are most threatened by, you build walls as a means of separating yourself from them. This could happen in your life when maybe you wall off conversation or relationship with somebody who does not line up directly with your own age, um, interests, or even uh, personality type. If you wall off conversation or even relationship with somebody who might be just a little bit different than you but is also a believer, um, you're showing this kind of uh, protecting of yourself. You're, you're fearful of something, I don't know, maybe awkwardness or um, the unknown of what their experience of life is. 16th century French reformer John Calvin comments on this passage and he says that it is a sign of an agitated and guilty mind that Cain thought of building a city for the purposes of separating himself from the rest of men. Cain builds a city because he doesn't want to die and he feels like he is the best option to get the job done. What do you have in your life that makes you feel most protected? What, are there things that when you feel exposed or agitated or anxious that you run to for security, for protection? Maybe, it, maybe it's alcohol. You've had a really hard week and you just want to let go and to numb out. Maybe it's hours upon hours of binging YouTube videos. Maybe it's essential oils. I don't, the scent that you like, <laughs> the, scent, the scent that you like takes you to a place of peace and security and so for you, that gives you protection. Um, you know where you go to for comfort and for control. Now, none of these things are inherently evil things and the uh, reason I reached into my pocket, I actually love essential oils sometimes. Um, tangerine is one of my favorites from my office. Um, and there are a couple of YouTube channels that I like following. So I'm not trying to say that these are inherently evil things, but good things can turn into bad things when they become God things. When we run to something for protection and for security and for comfort other than God, we're showing who we are, in a sense, worshiping as God. Really, another way to say this is that good gifts are terrible gods. 
because they don't give you what maybe they promise. They don't give you what God can give you, which is real security, real protection, real comfort. And so a city for Cain is not inherently an evil establishment, but Cain builds a city because he is agitated. He does not look to God, though, to provide for him the protection that God had promised. But he establishes a city to, in order to be self-sufficient and to self-protect. Cain shows his rebellion by defying God's protection. Now, the list that follows, um, Cain's uh, part of this text, uh, in 17 and 18, the list that follows is a dynastic list, meaning that this is a dynasty of rulers in this new city-nation of Cain's. Until we get to Lamech's offspring, the names mentioned are the kings of the nations. This means that there are probably many more children being born to Cain, to Enoch, to Irad, and so on. Uh, but they, so they most likely did not just have one son each. They most likely had more. But this is a dynastic list. And so look back at your copy of God's word and re let's read this line in 17 and 18. Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujel, and Mahujel fathered Methushel, Methushel fathered Lamech. Though not much is known about Cain's line until Lamech, a downward spiral away from living by God's good design is clearly seen as we compare Cain's actions to those of Lamech. And this is where we find the second defiance of the seed of the serpent to God and this Lamech's defiance of God's good design. Lamech defied God's good design. We see this quickly in just verse 19 at the very beginning and Lamech took two wives. This is the first description of Lamech's corrupt character. Lamech defied God's good designs uh, when he took on two wives. His wives' name are, are, are close to the Hebrews wor Hebrew words for beauty or sparkle, giving an indication of what Lamech cared most about, and that was outward appearance. And one wife was not enough for Lamech, so he took two wives. Lamech attempted to improve upon God's marriage ordinance. He attempted to improve on it, to make it better. And in so doing, he defied God's original good design. In Genesis 2, God says that a man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. So a man should leave his home and hold fast to his wife, and they too are to become one flesh, full stop. Not three would become one, but two, husband and wife, would become one. And Lamech was discontent with this. He said, I'm gonna make this even better for myself. And what we observe is, as Gordon, Dr. Gordon Wenham has said, Genesis is more concerned with illustrating how all human activity, including marriage, is affected by sin. God does not approve of those who attempt to improve on his design, 
but he permits the sinful actions to continue so that we might feel the decaying effects of our sin. And the rest of Genesis then is an expanded commentary on the effect of sin on marriage and sexuality. Lamech defies God uh, by not just being one man and one woman until death do you part, but, they, but he starts a pattern. In Genesis alone, Abraham has Sarah as a wife and has a child with Hagar. Jacob takes not one, not two, but four wives. Judah has a child with Tamar, his daughter-in-law, after he would not, after he would not give her his youngest son in marriage. All human activity is affected by sin, even marriage. You here this morning and you just fought with your spouse on the way in and so you are really done with it because it keeps happening. You wish somehow that you could get out of your marriage. Maybe you look across the auditorium and you long for the freedom of singleness. Why? Because maybe you have an express purpose of exploring other opportunities that are against God's design. Or single, sitting here, you, maybe you want to be married so bad that you're willing to live with a girlfriend or boyfriend before you get married. Any improvement upon God's good design for marriage and sexuality is defiance of himself. From Lamech and his two wives come four children. Let's read again, starting in verse 19. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Adah, and the name of the other was Zillah. And Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. Uh, he was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forager of instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. Culture is beginning to form within Cain's city. Included with this, city, with this city's culture is ranching, the arts, um, and even smithing or, or metalworking. You may ask while reading this, why was Nama mentioned? Why was Tubal Cain's sister mentioned? Which is a good question and it has been perplexing to most scholars and traditions. But the best explanation that I read was that the root word of Nama means song. And so it's most likely that as uh, Jubal, I believe, uh, yeah, Jubal was playing the lyre and the harp, that Nama was actually the one who sang the songs to the instruments. Nama sang to Jubal's music. Right after Nama is mentioned, her father Lamech bursts into a boastful song to his wife. Let your eyes fall back to verses 23 and 24. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. And this is where we find the third way that the serpent defies God, and that's that Lamech defied God's image. 
Lamech defied God's image. This is the second description of Lamech's corrupt character. And this is what pride does. It boasts myself above others. We may even downplay the fact that we are in God's image, that we are created in God's image. We deny God's image in ourselves, and we make ourselves God's. Lamech boasts in a song of strength and tyranny. The great violence that he boasts of is one that is in allegiance with the heart of enmity that we've been seeing in the past couple of weeks. The heart of enmity, of a desire to kill, of hatred towards. And so his killing of a man for striking him and a young, or sorry, a man for wounding and a young man for striking him is in line with this heart the desire to kill the lives of others at his own expense, and with his own hands. He doesn't trust God's own judgment. He doesn't trust that God will execute judgment, and so he takes vengeance for himself. Professor, old professor of mine, John Currid, explains that for Lamech, the basis of his killing is minimal. That is, Anyone who wrongs Lamech in the slightest degree forfeits his life. He will even outdo Yahweh in punishing offenders. Lamech is a man of fierce and cruel disposition. He gives no mercy or forgiveness. Lamech is a cruel man. If a man wounded him, Lamech defied even God's law of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and he kills that man. No mercy or even forgiveness, not even for a young boy. Lamech boasts that he kills him. The downward spiral into the tyranny of bloodlust shows itself in cruel ways. Even now, as we've even prayed for the country of Ukraine. Even now we are seeing the people of Ukraine stand defiant in the face of Russian tyranny. Ukrainian leader, President Zelensky, has called on his people to fight back against the tyranny of bloodlust, resource lust, and revenge that is driving Russia to invade their land. By way of contrast, while we are seeing Ukraine stand defiant in the face of Russian tyranny, we see in our text Lamech stand defiant in favor of tyranny. You may not have bloodlust, but you have really come to despise a person or a group of people. Who are the people in your life who are hard to love? Those parents with a kid on your son or daughter's basketball team who every single game they are yelling in the stands and it is driving you nuts. Maybe the, that coworker who's consistently messing up but never gets in trouble for it puts more work on you. Maybe the teacher, students, who gives you the last minute assignment that it's gonna take you all weekend to complete and you had plans. Or maybe just anyone in the LGBTQ 
community. Maybe someone at work who you know, maybe a family member, and for some reason you just find it hard to love them. If Jesus says that you have anger in your heart and it drives you to hatred of them, that is as good as murder. That is just as though you are murdering. And so are you not just like Lamech? You get together with maybe your friends and your family and you complain and complain, stripping that person or those people from the image of God that God has stamped on them. You didn't do it, but you can strip it from them in your minds. You are even in that moment opposing God himself. You're saying, God, I I actually disagree with your good design, your image stamped on them, and I want to tear them down. If Jesus says that you are angry at someone, are we not like Lamech? Lamech gathers his family around and he glories in the deeds of his violence against the image of God and other people. Lamech declares his importance by declaring that though Cain's vengeance was seven times worse, his vengeance would be, if he was wronged, 77 times worse. Number seven in the Bible is a number of completeness. And so while Cain's vengeance would be a complete measure, Lamech declares that his would be an overflowing measure. We get the sense that if even somebody looked at Lamech wrong, he would kill him. And that's the first serial murderer in the world is unleashed. It's a dark time. And that wraps up the line of Cain. It's as though we've just finished a horror movie. The downward spiral of sin will pick back up in Genesis 6. But for now, as we keep reading in this chapter, we're given a striking contrast between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And these last two verses are almost like a post-credit scene. You know those movies with a nice post-credit scene that keep your uh, intrigue going in the plot? This is almost like a post-credit scene giving a little glimmer of hope. Man, you just finished a horror story. But there is hope. And that's where we come to the second main point of our text today, and that's the seed's reliance, the seed of the woman's reliance. Imagine you're Adam and Eve. You have just lost your son to murder. You've just lost another son to punishment. You've lost two sons. The grief, that experience of grief and loss probably a heartache in your heart, something Adam and Eve had never experienced before. And so this heartache is there, is present. And that's within In that context, those emotions, that grief is where we find ourselves picking back up in verse 25. So look there with me. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. 
For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. The plot thickens. In this post-credit scene, a plot twist is introduced. That when Adam and Eve conceive of their son, she, she bears the son and names him Seth, meaning appointed or substitute. Showing that Eve believes that Seth is Abel's substitute and that through him, God will fulfill his promises to them. And that's the first way that we see uh, the seed of the woman, those who live by faith, the how they must live. And that is by relying on God's promise. Adam and Eve relied on God's promise. The world has been cast into decay and disarray, but the hope oozing out of Seth's name and its explanation shows who they're relying on for their safety. The corruption we find in the world cannot match the hope we find in the promises of God. The corruption we find in the world cannot match the hope that we find in the promises of God. Cain's killing of Abel could not overcome the promise that there would be a godly seed, one who would crush the head of the serpent. And it would not thwart the plan for the final seed, Jesus, who would come and in whom all of God's promises would find their yes and amen. Look back at Eve's explanation of Seth's name. She says, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Now when Eve says another offspring, the word here offspring could be translated also as seed. In her mind, possibly the seed from Genesis 3.15 this promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. She possibly even believed that Seth was it. Seth was the one who was going to defeat this evil line. But she knew that if it wasn't him, that through Seth, God would fulfill his promises. What we see in Adam and Eve is that they relied on God's promises to excuse not to excuse them from pain, but to hold them fast in the face of devastation. The psalmist reflects this in Psalm 119.50. He says, this is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. Similarly, Dr. Ligon Duncan said that the promises of God do not exempt us from suffering and calamity. They enable us to suffer with hope. God's promises are our bedrock to get us through the devastation of life. And what are these promises? It's that for those and only those who have put their trust in the finished work of Christ, his perfect life and his substitutionary death, that his perfect life qualified him to be a true substitute that he didn't have to atone for his own sins first, but that he was, as a perfect lamb without spot or blemish, able to be a substitute for the sins of others. Seth 
was in a sense a substitute to continue this seed of the woman, but Jesus is the final substitute. His death was on behalf of sinners. And this is what we read in 1 Peter 3.18, which plug, this is what we're studying tonight in Bible Institute. And so if you can come out, we'd love to have you join us for that. But this is what Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. This Jesus is the final seed of the woman. And God has promised that those who put their faith in him for their very life, Christ will hold them fast. As the song says, when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. We need Christ to hold us fast. Because if it were up to us, we would lose our grip because we are weak. We are fragile. We are frail. We are only humans. And so that's actually what leads us to our final point of reliance this morning. Seth shows us reliance on God's power. Seth relied on God's power. Seth has a son, and in verse 26, he names him Enosh. This word could simply mean man, but there's a flavor of frailty to this word, to this name. And so Cain, or sorry, Seth, in essence, calls his son weak man. Seth shows a reliance upon God's power because it, he knew that it wasn't in him that could boast like Cain. If he tried to boast like Cain in his strength, he would be, he would be just like Cain. And he did not build a city in favor of his own legacy. He doesn't boast in the strength of revenge like his relative Lamech. Seth names his son weak man. Such is mankind apart from God and with respect to God. <laughs> we are weak. We are mere creatures. We could never work our way back to God. We could never do enough things to make him happy with us. We must rely on God's power to save us, to keep us to restrain us from sin, to infuse our worship with faith. Faith in itself is a gift from God so that we don't have any ground for boasting. Because if we did, we would. We can't muster up enough faith in God apart from God himself. We can't have the favor of God without also having God. We take him our need. We take to him our need of his power, of his strength to hold us fast and he answers. Would you call upon the name of the Lord this morning? Maybe for the first time, maybe for the 500th. Would you confess your reliance on him this morning? As we land the plane, I wonder if in the roller coaster of life, 
you are relying on the promise of safety and protection by God's power. Are you? Are you relying on his promise that as you hang on to him by faith and sometimes it feels like it's a thread, that he will hold on to you securely? Or will you defy God's protection and ride through the ups and downs and roundabouts of life self-reliant? Maybe you're here and you've never trusted in Jesus to save you from the penalty of your sins. He offers to you this morning his abundantly sufficient work. You don't have to work for it. All you must do is turn from your defiance, acknowledge your weakness, and take your need to him. He will redeem you from your self-sufficiency and bring you into a life of flourishing that you are meant for, a life of reliance on him. Let's pray.